Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is Newsroom Robots, the podcast where we explore the intersection of artificial intelligence and the news industry. I'm Nikita Roy, data scientist, media entrepreneur, and one of the many founders currently building their ventures at the Harvard Innovation Labs. On the Newsroom Robots, I'm excited to bring you insightful conversations with industry experts about how AI is impacting the way we do journalism. This week's episode is a continuation of my conversation with Jeff Jarvis, the co-host of the podcast This Week in Google and AI Inside, as well as the author of The Gutenberg Parenthesis, The Age of Print and Its Lessons for the Age of the Internet. In the first part of our conversation, Jeff joined me to discuss whether generative AI companies should be allowed to use news media's copyrighted content to train their AI models. In this week's episode, we discuss how journalism business models may be affected by the rise of generative AI, and Jeff shares his vision for the future of journalism education. I want to talk more about when we talk about copyright then, then what's going to happen to the business of journalism if people are... Even with now, if just deals that they have struck up with the AP and then Axel Springer, they're able to produce, they go and retrieve the news right now and then have that shown in all of the Microsoft Copilot products are now in ChatGPT. As you say, a lot of the news is then repeated across different, different news organizations. So one thing that I think about is that, okay, they have struck a deal with Axel Springer. Now they have like all of the big news from the US, like Politico and stuff there. They just need maybe one of that source then to have it embedded within a Microsoft Copilot product versus going to all of the different news companies, all of the different local news companies that exist, then how is the business of journalism going to change because the tech is going to evolve and be a part of people's lives? Well, Axel Springer is interesting because they own Business Insider. Business Insider is famous for rewriting other news sites. 
again, as is their right to do so. It is transformative. They read the New York Times story. They write their own story based on it because the business model pushes them to do that. This is what makes our business so incredibly inefficient, is that we devote a huge amount of resource to copying each other. So we have our own page with our own content, with our own clicks and likes and SEO to get our own ad impression on our own pennies. And so Business Insider makes a business of doing that. So now if OpenAI licenses Business Insider and Business Insider rewrites the New York Times, Business Insider can do what Congress was saying OpenAI shouldn't do, which is to read, learn, and use. It's a really interesting question, Nikita. As, as I think about it, as you ask me, it's the same problem as being able to make a digital copy for free and the link. Where you can't control it by selling a CD because digital anybody can copy it, A, and B, you can't syndicate it because all you need is one copy online and all you need is a link to that. That completely sucks away this value of the content and attention economies. And so once again, I think what has to happen in news is that we've got to reevaluate and reinvent ourselves around different spheres of value. If we still think that we're valuable only because we make this thing called content, we are doomed. And AI is not the agent of doom, but it shows us that future. I want to get into that more than if it's more than content, where are the other ways also you see AI helping newsrooms to innovate with their business? I think that's, that's the right question. That's what we should be concentrating on. I think there's lots of areas. I listed some in my testimony of the Senate. Obviously, AI in general is really good now at translation. And I don't think that translating news into other languages is culturally appropriate or valuable in all cases because there's more context than just that. However, the translation's amazing. I go and read Helsing and Sonomat in Finnish, the most impossible language I can imagine, thanks to Google Translate. And it opens up a world for me. So I think there's a chance to expand one's horizons. I think there's a chance to use it to have people who are sources, so to speak, tell their own stories rather than us exploiting them and illustrate their stories. There's a lot of opportunity around illustration. That gets us into labor issues too, but so did the camera. I think that... There's data to be had in this mirror we have. One thing we've certainly seen is that when on the query side, a large language model deals with a restricted corpus of information, of documents, it's good at things like summarizing. And Google's Notebook LM, if you haven't spoken with him yet, Stephen Johnson, who's the editorial director there, is great on this. Uh, he's an author. They, Google hired an editorial director, who would imagine? Because they wanted an author to say what's useful. And Notebook LM is going to be, I think, really interesting in helping journalists do things. Another thing I brainstormed about with an editor of one site is what if, what if that editor said to their readers, okay, I need 100 of you to go and record your school board meetings this week. Then bring them back, and we're going to have the machine transcribe them. And then we're going to query that corpus and say, how many of these school boards are trying to ban books versus how many are talking about the mental welfare of their students, right? There's something that, that an individual couldn't do. When I went to that WEF thing one more time, we had a discussion about the benefits and the, and the perils. On the benefits side, they, the group I was in said that AI, and they didn't want to separate out large language models, just regenerative AI, it's just AI. AI can raise the floor. It can enable people to do things they otherwise couldn't do. People who can't write can write. People who can't code can code with limitations. People who can't draw can draw, can illustrate. It also scales ability. I can do something faster and easier and do more of it. It also raises the ceiling. It lets us do things that we weren't otherwise capable of doing, like folding proteins or analyzing 100 school board meetings. On the bad side, it's going to have uneven economic impact, enables the scaling of evil, 
of doing things, bad things at scale. And it also robs people or takes away people, some of them, their sense of purpose, writers, coders, and so on. And all of this is going to be uneven as hell. But if a newsroom is smart, I think you've got to look at it and just say, where are the benefits that have here? One last example, and I talked about this with Stephen Johnson when I visited him at Google. Imagine the, so you put, you put a whole bunch of documents in a notebook LM, and then you ask a question. You put in transcriptions of podcasts and interviews, you put in documents, you put in old stories and clips, and then you say, you know, who said what about what? Well, imagine putting that interface in front of news content. So rather than, the only way, things we present now are number one, the editor's view of the news. Here's what's most important. Well, news organizations, the Times and the Guardian produce hundreds of news items a day. No one can read all of that. There's all kinds of stuff that might interest me that I miss. But if I could go in and query it and its archive, I would be able to get a different view of that news. Better than search, better than the homepage, more specific to my needs. It doesn't replace those two, but rather than complaining about Bard giving people information so they don't have to go to the news site, why don't you do that, New York Times? Why don't you do that, news organizations? And that's where I think Amy's idea of the LLM for news makes sense. I'm not sure it works across all of news. That's an Associated Press view. Maybe it does. Maybe you go into the Cleveland Plain Dealer, you ask a question, and maybe it doesn't have the answer, but it knows that the San Francisco Chronicle does. That's another way to look at it. So I think we, we have to have a brainstorming about how to use this without going wacky. Now, at the same time, obviously, CNET and GeoMedia and Gannett have all screwed up in using this to scale bad content. Gannett's the least guilty there. I think they just weren't clear enough with their audience. Because what Gannett did was say, we can't cover these thousand high school games. We can't give you stories about your kid's game. Now we can. They should have said, by the way, a machine wrote this. It's probably going to screw up. Ha ha ha. Tell us what it does. And then it would have been okay. But when they didn't tell the public where this was created, they put themselves in a situation where they affected their own brand. And that was bad. And I think that was also a natural language generation, which also might have not the same as generative AI. It was not hallucinating. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I don't think generative AI should be used right now to be writing articles at scale because of the hallucination. No, it's irresponsible. When I went to cover the show cause hearing for that, that lawyer, Schwartz, who last year used uh, ChatGPT to come up with cite case citations, I didn't know the machine could lie, he said, which is somewhat defensible, right? Uh, you know, it's presented as a super search engine, he said. That's Microsoft's mistake. But the judge and his lawyer, when your lawyer's lawyer has to hire a lawyer, you know, in trouble, the lawyer's lawyer told the judge, oh, thank you, Your Honor. You've shown the world the dangers of this chat GPT. And the judge interrupted and said, I set out to do no such thing. He didn't care about the technology. 
He cared about its misuse by attorneys who didn't do their full job. Same will be said of journalists if they use this to cheat. I think that's a really powerful statement, the way you've phrased it, actually. And what I'm really getting from this conversation is we are more than content. We need to think about creating experiences. If you go to a generative AI search uh, and they are able to query your news websites, bring on that experience to your own news website instead of telling them. And another thing that I'm getting from it was actually, it brings me back to, I think, something, a point you had spoken in one of your talks that I've listened to where you were talking about we need to move from content to conversation. And news industry needs to have more of a conversation. And I want to get into that a bit more in terms of, again, broadening out just the content, the business of content that we are in, because the business of content is changing and models can write content now. So where are the other kind of ways in which you think are there places elsewhere in the world you've been seeing a lot of innovation in that you think we here in the in North America and the U.S. are able to, should be emulating a bit more? Well, first, a conversation. I think that's going back to what is the true nature of society and, by the way, of media from the early days. When I researched in the Gutenberg parenthesis, the early days of media, I saw very much that, that print was conversational. Martin Luther and the Pope were in a conversation between their books and the burnings of them. Erasmus and Sir Thomas More had literal conversations and setting each other letters for their books. The earliest magazines, Harper's in 1850, solicited content from the public for the purposes of public discourse. Media were quite conversational until they got to the point of the mechanization and industrialization and scaling of print. And then it was just too big to do it. And it took away the conversational nature. So I think there's an opportunity now to return to that conversational nature and rescale media down from mass to a human scale. Before, as you had to put out a publication that was going to serve millions of people because you could only have one machine putting it out. Now it's different. And one of the ironies, and that's not an irony, it's just a coincidence, I think, is that in engagement journalism, my colleague Carrie Brown and I teach the students to write prompts for covering the communities they cover. Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Writing prompts for the machine is asking in a conversational way what you want to retrieve, what you want to learn, what you want to know. And, and that's going to be, I think, a very key skill going forward that in a different sense captures conversation. Yes, we're talking to a machine, not to a human being, but that's what's so magical about large language models. That's why we're. That's why this podcast exists and a hundred others of them, including mine that I'm starting again next week and called AI Inside and others because suddenly the machine seems to understand us and it speaks our language. And I think that's where the power lies here. That's what's freaking people out or fascinating. And now I forgot the second half of your question. Yeah, the next part I was really talking about was where's the innovation you're seeing in large language models being used in news that you think we should be thinking more about. I remember reading in your blog somewhere, you wrote, why can't we be more like Norway, talking about the innovation you're seeing over at Shipstead? So when I went to this WEF event in San Francisco, I, at the cocktail party where I knew no one, I ended up talking to a very nice uh, executive of an AI company from Norway. And he said, oh, in Norway, I said, because they're Norwegian, they're just sane and sensible and smart and good and decent. He said, well, we're, we're just digitized. All of our newspapers are digitized. Almost all of our books are already digitized. It's all digital. So that makes it pretty easy to get it in. And he said, in fact, there's a movement to create a Norwegian language LLM so that you're not just dependent upon the English language models. I said, oh. I said, are the publishers putting up holy hell the way they do here? He said, no, they're cooperating. So I looked it up afterwards and Shipstead, which is the largest news publisher in Norway and much of Scandinavia and is 
terribly admired by the rest of the industry. Shipstead is smarter than any news company I know out there. They have been more innovative. They have been more strategic and bold at every step and more successful in everything, in paywalls, in collaboration, in everything. So I looked it up and the CTO of Shipstead at last year's Nordic Media Day urged all publishers to contribute their content to an effort to create not only Norwegian language, but other Northern Germanic language, LLMs. I'm fascinated by this. So I called him the day I testified in the Senate and asked him more about this. And he explained that, that they're seeing this in two phases, in a research phase and then a commercial phase. So for the research phase, they want everybody to just throw their stuff in. And even the books, they're going to experiment to say, does having all these books in bring value to the model? If so, he said, maybe the government will help pay for it or something like that. We'll figure that out. But they're going at it in the sense of saying, we're going to build the best we can so we are competitive with and better than the stuff coming out of Silicon Valley, which is the right way to look at it, rather than other countries which say, let's sue them or let's pass laws against them. Shipstead's view is let's beat them. I spoke to the board of directors of Shipstead one year, and I tried to tell them what they should do in cooperation with Google. And the CTO at the time, different guy, said, we're better than Google. I thought, well, that's hubris. But in a way, they are, because they try it themselves. So I think that's really valuable. When they get to the commercial part, it could all change, right? Then all the publishers can say, uh-uh, deal's not good enough, I'm out, take my stuff out, you can't use it to respond to queries. We'll see. But at that point, they will have something in Norwegian and Swedish and Danish and so on. The other thing I asked them was this question of the new user interface that LLMs provide. And he said, oh yes, we've already done that. They took their version of uh, Engadget, the review site, and he said, we put all of our all of our content into it. And then that allowed, rather than just searching, that allowed the user to come along, the reader to come along and say, I need a TV that's about this size, but it's in a really bright room and I want it to be thin and I want this and I want that. And it then came back with answers. And again, as we know, when the large language model deals with a constricted corpus and cites and links to the citations, it's pretty good. It's pretty reliable. It's pretty useful. It's not like asking just a raw model questions, right? And so that presents an entirely new user interface, a new value for a subscriber, maybe a different subscription, maybe a different sales product. Maybe you can see licensing that to electronics stores. I mean, you can see all kinds of things happen if you think creatively. So Shipstead is one that I think is doing very good work. I wish I had other examples. Right now, I don't. But you have more examples than I do. Shipstead is one that has been on my radar quite a bit as well. It's very interesting to hear the difference in throwing all of your data at the large language models so that they can create that research versus what's happening over here and how news is working. The industry is approaching it over here. And where do you see, actually, one thing I wanted to also understand is you've been an educator for a really long time and you have built so many programs here at the Newmark School of Journalism at CUNY. And how does the future generation of journalists need to be trained for dealing with AI in the newsrooms? Do you see that as a completely new thing, like a new program that you would have been establishing if you were here at CUNY? I don't know that it throws everything up in the air. I think it's, it's a new set of opportunities and skills. So how I think prompt writing becomes critical. I think making students realize that they can now program machines to do the things they want to do if they're not coders, which I think is a tremendous new opportunity. On AI Inside My AI, my AI Podcast, because everybody's going to have an AI podcast now, <laughs> and we'll have you on that one soon. 
AIinside.show. It's coming out of workshopping and going into the world. Yeah, very excited for that. I am. And one of the workshop episodes, we had on a CEO of an AI company, and he had a great line saying that this is the revenge of the English major. For he said, and there's limitations to what I'm about to say, but he said that the most powerful programming language on planet Earth today is English. Now, I certainly hope it becomes languages other than just English, but the point is the same, that it is the human language rather than the language of the machine that we can now speak. So getting journalists to understand that they could program things, that they can use the machine to do what they thought they needed a technologist to do, and they probably need help from the technologist, they probably need other ways to do it, I think is going to be, should be part of the schooling certainly training them on the limitations of the models and the dangers of using the models for news and so on and so forth. I have a larger agenda, Nikita, which is that one of the programs that I hope I get to start somewhere else is a program in internet studies. My purpose here actually is to demote the geeks and to, in the case of the internet, I see it as a human network. And I think we have to bring in the humanities and the social sciences into the decision-making there and prepare our students to be leaders by teaching anthropology and psychology and ethics and community studies and design and history. And I think that all matters. And to me, AI is an extension of the internet. For without the internet, there wouldn't be an AI because we wouldn't be able to get all that data. And what data do we get? We get human speech that is there. So I think getting our students to realize the opportunities and the limitations, and as we've discussed earlier, and I'm really glad you brought all that up, the need to fill in the blanks that exist in AI and find the opportunities there. So yes, I would do different things when it comes to certainly working with data, technology, presentation and packaging, and just an open mind entrepreneurially too, I think. And I feel like what AI can do versus humans can is that connection. And that's where I feel journalists and journalism's role exists as well in being able to connect with audience, being able to connect with sources, being able to then report and break stories and maybe focusing on those kind of skills and harnessing and helping gen get students develop those skills more. So I'm very interested in the way you're talking about, especially also like about internet studies and how that could all come together. So I had a crazy idea this week, uh, Bell Labs, which is an iconic institution that happens to be in New Jersey, in Murray Hill, New Jersey. It's where tremendous work was done. It was where the, the transistor was invented, work on lasers, communications, obviously, of all sorts. It was AT&T, uh, now it's owned by Nokia. They're leaving their historic headquarters and going to more modern facilities. And I wrote an op-ed in the Star-Ledger and NJ.com in New Jersey asking that it be converted into a museum and school for the internet. I think we have to understand the internet. And again, I, I think AI is an extension of the internet. And Bell Labs did work on artificial intelligence. To understand that, to see where the opportunities are, where the perils are, to examine how we got here, to examine the history of this in the larger context of media, what's new, what's not new, where we have precedent, and where we have lessons. I think there's a tremendous need and opportunity there. So that's really where I want to start thinking next, is that I have another book coming out later this year called The Web We Weave, why we must reclaim the internet from moguls, misanthropes, and moral panic. And in the end, it's a critique of media's moral panic about the internet, because I think media have turned the internet into an enemy, and they're now doing the same thing with AI. Oh, it's dangerous. Oh, it's terrible. So I think one other thing, one other answer to your question about journalism is how we cover AI and how we cover the internet. One thing that's fascinated me is the faux philosophies that drive some of the AI boys. 
Tescrial, transhumanism, long-termism, uh, effective altruism, and so on. And they're wacky. There's some pretty wacky philosophies that say that we should pay attention to the 10 to the 58th future human beings. The ones right now don't matter so much. And by the way, I'm really rich and powerful and technological, so I should decide what that future is. You shouldn't. And it touches on utilitarianism and also eugenics. It's scary stuff. And so I'm not scared of AI. I'm scared of a lot of the AI boys who follow this stuff, cult-like. So I think that we in media have done a terrible job of covering the internet. We see it, and we saw it first as the future utopia, and then immediately turning on a dime, saw it as dystopia and destruction and evil companies, all of which was too simplistic. And we see the same thing happening right now with AI. So that's why your work, my friend, is so important. Because it's not just about the AI, it's about the AI in the context of journalism. And that's what you're doing, and I'm so glad you're doing it, because we need to get not just the use, but also the coverage of this field to be smarter than it is to date. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Jeff. This is not expecting that. <laughs> <laughs> well, well-deserved. I appreciate it. You know, in the time we have left, I kind of want to wrap up and I love hearing about how people are using AI in their own everyday life. And I think that really helps spark ideas as well in terms of how we could, I learn a lot from all the tools and use cases my guests have. So I want to hear from you. How have you been using AI? You seem to be a huge AI proponent. So how have you been using it? Maybe not as much as you think. Obviously, I use it to translate, but I think it's I think it's the small ways that it's inside. I think Google is very frustrated that when ChatGPT came along and then came into Bing, Google sit there saying, we've been doing this for years and nobody noticed because it was just part of it. So I use it every day when it helps me with my email. I use it every day in Translate. I also just yesterday, it's snowing here in New Jersey, and yesterday I had to go out to our hilly driveway and I fell because I'm a klutz and I hit my, my wrist, my right wrist, and I'm right-handed. So it's all complicated today, but yesterday I couldn't type. It's like having no mouth. So what I do, I turn on my Chromebook and I turn on dictation and it works really well, right? It works really well because AI had learned to do this and, and natural language processing is part of this whole string of advancement. So I have not subscribed. I should do this. I think I'm going to do this now, but now that I have no expense account, it's harder. I should subscribe to ChatGPT so I can go to GPT-4 and play with things. So I'm on the other podcast called This Week in Google on the Twit Network every week. And this week, I'll tweet it and Blue Sky it and Instagram threads it and Facebook it and LinkedIn it. There's a clip about us talking about the GPT store opening because I don't have a subscription, but Leo Laporte, the host, does. I said, well, have you played with it yet? And he said, yeah, a little bit. And he did one for Lisp programming that he put in there. And we go in and Paris Martineau, the co-host of the show, said that the rules say you're not supposed to have girlfriends, chat GPT girlfriends, but that they're in there. And I should say just GPT girlfriends. So Leo searched and he found them. And then I said, are there boyfriends too? And at first he said, no. I said, oh my God, yes, there's boyfriends. And so we were doing a dialogue with the ChatGPT boyfriend and it was hilarious, right? It was funny. It was, it, was, it was a parlor trick. I think what we have to do at this point is recognize that LLMs are parlor tricks. What's behind them is very powerful technology, but at the level at which they work, they don't do much. The one thing I want to do playing for, I have an idea for another, another book I want to write after the internet book and after another one I'm working on. You'll never, you'll always keep us updated. Well, I will always sell man. I am always selling. And so I was thinking about this. 
I might try to do some fiction. I've never really done fiction. Or I did once to go to Breadloaf, and it was crap. I wrote a novel. Thank God no one published it. It's still sitting up there on a shelf. But I want to play with something again. So I was thinking, okay, let me go and brainstorm character and plot with it. And this made me think that, imagine, Nikita, if when LLMs came out, instead of saying that they were this super search engine or this way to query the world, what if they were positioned as fiction machines, as creativity machines? A lot of the problems that we put on them would go away. Oh yeah, it makes shit up. It's supposed to, right? That's what it does. It would play to its strength uh, in that sense. Oh, it makes up all kinds of crazy stuff and a brainstorming machine, right? If we had positioned, if it had been positioned differently, I didn't position it, you didn't position it, OpenAI and company positioned it. And I think that's a lot of the reason we're in knickers and knots right now is because it was presented as being able to do things it can't and it wasn't presented for the strengths that it in fact has. So I want to play with those strengths more. And that includes making shit up and brainstorming and examining society's presumptions and biases. In my air quotes retirement between writing books, that's what I want to play with. I'm going to steal that from you, creativity machine. I like the way that's phrased because then it... I mean, it's also only so creative, right? Because it, it's a cliche machine is what it really is. But it could really spur innovation. And yeah, I really hope your wrist feels better soon. Thank you. <laughs> In the meantime, you should also try ChatGPT's voice function. So you could talk to it and it would talk back to you and write stuff for you so you don't have to type prompts for it anymore. So that's one of my favorite features of ChatGPT right now. And there's also another tool called Oasis that would convert whatever you say into text, emails, anything that you need to. So you could still be working <laughs> if you need to that way. Well, I have to go back out. It's snowing again. So I have to go back out and clear the driveway again. So I could be infirm again very soon. No. Well, Jeff, this has been very enlightening for me, really understanding the history of copyright. Well, real pleasure talking to you. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Thank you, Jeff. I really enjoyed it. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. And I'll see you next time on AI Inside. That was Jeff Jarvis, the author of the Gutenberg Parenthesis, The Age of Print and Its Lessons for the Age of the Internet, and the co-host of the podcast This Week in Google and AI Inside. Stay updated with the Newsroom Robots podcast and sign up for a newsletter at newsroomrobots.com. This podcast is made possible thanks to the Harvard Innovation Lab's Spark Grant. I'm Nikita Roy, and this is Newsroom Robots. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.